This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Welcome to Not Defined by Endo podcast with me, your host, Teniola. There have been lots of controversy and confusion and pretty much disagreement on various aspects of the disease called endometriosis. Right from the definition of the disease, the pathology, the theories of the causes of the disease, and even up to the treatment methods to be used for the disease. So much is shrouded in uncertainty and confusion And there is a huge knowledge gap in society about the disease, as well as a skills gap amongst professionals. We are fighting to raise awareness about this disease and reduce the diagnosis times, which are currently on average seven to 10 years. Considering that this disease affects approximately 176 million women worldwide, a study showed that a shocking 62% of women aged 16 to 24 don't even know what endometriosis is. Many live with these symptoms without knowing it isn't normal. And for those who go to see a doctor because they are concerned, many are told it might just be in their head. And this is why knowledge and awareness is key to changing the statistics. Endo 101 is a mini series that seeks to inform and educate on the enigma that is endometriosis. My purpose on this mini-series is to talk about all the aspects of endometriosis, right from proper definition to treatment methods and even myths that are pandered about the disease. I'm so privileged to be joined on this series by Mr. Thomas Bainton, the Endometriosis Fellow and a Senior Registrar in Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, UK. In today's episode, we are asking, what is endometriosis? How and why does it happen? Thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. I'm really excited about this series. I look forward to breaking it all down over the next few weeks. Tenny, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. And thank you very much for inviting me along. An enigma is how you describe (laughs) endometriosis. I think it's a very good way to put it. It it definitely is is an enigma, right? So can we start with a little history of endometriosis? Who first identified the disease and when was it identified? Absolutely. That's a very good question. And I think it's something that isn't necessarily a thing that us doctors know a huge amount about. We do learn these sorts of things back in medical school, but these things often get long forgotten. It was probably discovered long before anyone even wrote it down or thought about it. Of course, women have been having endometriosis since the dawn of women. I'm sure it is not a disease that's come around in the last century or the last few centuries when we've known about it and written it down. Most of the things that were first found out, as so many things were found out in medicine, were probably during autopsy. So after people had died, there would have been dissections and there would have been things discovered and things seen that kind of explain the symptoms that may or may not have had leading up to that. The name that always comes up when you look about it is Rosikansky, who was a surgeon and doctor in 
I think he was in Germany, was it? Von Rotterkansky, they call him. So probably in that neck of the woods, at least, whether Germany existed at that time or not. It was the middle of the 19th century. Right. And he described these deposits in women and abnormal growth of uterine tissue. It wasn't called endometriosis at the time. That was probably one of the first depictions and, and descriptions of exactly what was going on. Right. I suspect what he was looking at was really quite severe disease. These weren't small peritoneal deposits of endometriosis. It was probably big plaques and lesions that, 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 that uh, developed in these women. Right. There were other scientists that came along after him. Thomas Cullen is a chap who comes up and he, he, he described similar sorts of findings, again, probably looking on autopsy too. The name that, again, people would find if they're looking into history is this chap called John Sampson. Because mainly, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, he described one of the potential mechanisms as how endometriosis sets in. And it's extraordinary that we're talking about a chap who was writing in the 1920s as having one of the valid proposed <laughs> mechanisms, which says a lot about how little we understand about endometriosis even to this day. But, but he was an English doctor who, who found out a little bit more about endometriosis and described it and talked about it, as well as the, the previous two that came before him. Okay. So there's so many articles and publications like we described endometriosis at the beginning as an enigma there's so many um, articles that say that define endometriosis as when tissue that lines the uterus is growing somewhere else so growing in places such as the ovaries or bowels or even the bladder but research has since shown that this is not correct we now know that endometrial implants are actually tissue that are resembling or similar to that in the uterus. Women with endometriosis have gone through so much for so many years and have suffered so long. And I think it would be a huge disservice if we don't begin to clearly define the disease in the right way. So I want to ask today, how important do you think this distinction is and what does it even matter? Absolutely. I think that's a really good question. Broadly speaking, I think it's correct to say we're looking at endometrial tissue or tissue that's often found in the lining of the womb that's outside the womb is what endometriosis is. You know, you say, why does it matter? And to the individual patient, it doesn't necessarily matter exactly what the, the genetic makeup and what exactly this tissue is. It can be anywhere. Most commonly, it's in the pelvis. We often talk about it being on the, the peritoneum. I think we're going to talk in a bit more depth exactly where it's found later on, but that's the area of the pelvis that lines the, the organs and lines the, the, the abdominal wall. It's also found on the ovaries and it can make cysts on the ovaries. These are the endometriotic cysts or endometriomas as we call them. Yeah. And then there's this deep infiltrating endometriosis, which is defined in different ways. And people talk about deposits of greater than five millimeters into the peritoneal cavity, but actually it's probably slightly different from that. It's not, it doesn't always have to be five millimeters. I think the reason why that's important, you say that it's tissue resembling or similar to the lining of the womb, is that each of those different forms of endometriosis looks slightly different under a microscope and it acts in slightly different ways. And there are theories that they're actually fundamentally three different conditions to start with. Wow. As well as that, you're saying the endometriosis looks different from the endometrial tissue in the lining of the womb. But it's also true to say that the endometrial tissue in the lining of the womb looks different in people with endometriosis versus people who don't, who don't have that condition. Oh, wow. When you take a specimen of the endometrium, people look inside the, the, the womb. It, uh, some people listening to this might have had hysteroscopies or papel biopsies where we pass a very small instrument in through the cervix and take a sample of the tissue. If you were to look at that tissue on a genetic basis or a hormonal basis, there are about you know, 200 different characteristics between the endometrium in someone who doesn't have endometriosis and someone who does. 
huge amounts of that is a, is a chicken and egg situation. And, and a lot of the explanations as to what's going on in, in endometriosis boil down to this, which happened first. Does the endometriosis change the hormonal and the genetic environment in the womb or is it the other way around? And actually it's a, a cause and effect. The endometriosis that's outside the womb also looks very different. Hmm. Is that to do with where it is structurally or is that to do with the reason why it's got there in the first place? I think we're going to get onto it talking about how it might have got there. But if you have endometriosis in your chest, it looks very different to endometriosis on your ovary or on the peritoneum in the same way if you have it on your bowel or on your diaphragm. It's not just the endometriosis that makes the, the pain and the condition as well. I should say it's not just the endometrial tissue. It's the way the tissue around where it's implanted reacts to it. And you get muscle cell types forming and, and fibrosis and scar tissue forming, all of which look slightly different depending on whereabouts the implant is. So absolutely, it's that they resemble or similar to the endometrial cells in the lining of the womb, but they're certainly not the same. Is that because the, the fundamentals of the endometrium is different in someone with endometriosis? Or is that because it's changed beyond recognition to do with whereabouts it is, either in the pelvis or elsewhere in the body? We don't know. You say, does that matter? Well, probably if you're a molecular scientist and you're trying to find solutions to this sort of thing, which a lot of people are, rest assured, people dedicate their whole careers to looking at the molecules that make up endometriosis. But if you're an individual patient, it probably doesn't matter a huge amount. I think a very good and simplistic way of thinking about it is that it is the endometrial lining outside the womb. And broadly speaking, that's what it is. The key question is, do those endometrial-like structures and cells come from the inside of the womb? Has it moved from there and implanted elsewhere, or was it elsewhere all along? And I think when we talk about the potential reasons why people get endometriosis, we'll get into that a little bit more. But broadly speaking, tissue resembling or similar to the tissue on the lining of the womb is a very reasonable way of putting it. Okay. That's a very interesting and clear explanation of those differences i think what the issue is many people especially endometriosis patients feel like if you say if you define especially for those who are really trying to understand the disease mm. they say if you don't define the disease properly then it's it means that people don't understand it enough to find the right answers. So that I think that's, Absolutely. What, yeah, I think that's what the issue is. But yeah, I think it's interesting what you just said that even the um, makeup of the endometrial lining within the um, uterus for women with endometriosis can be different or is usually different to those without endometriosis. And I think that's certainly, that's a key point. So yeah. Think, and it's different to women with subfertility versus women without subfertility. And there's lots and lots of factors that make differences in the lining of the womb. The question again is whether those differences cause the endometriosis or whether those differences are because of the endometriosis. Yeah. In terms of making that diagnosis, describing it as being endometrial glands or stroma, as we talk about, which are the endometrial tissue that release hormones and release fluid and uh, uh, et cetera during menstruation outside the lining of the womb is, I think, well-established and, and there's a consensus on that. That is endometriosis. There is not necessarily consensus on the cause of endometriosis in different sites and whether 
it is the same condition everywhere. There seems to be quite a big difference between that deep infiltrating disease, the one that causes those nodules and the one that causes quite severe symptoms. We're talking about some of the people listening might be familiar with the American Society of Reproductive Medicine stages, stage three or four disease with, with, with large adhesions. I think thinking about that as being a, a different condition is probably a good way of thinking about things. Yeah. Small peritoneal implants look very different under the microscope than the big endometriotic nodules we see between the womb and the, and the back passage and the rectum when we look at them under the microscope. It might be to do with how they got there. It might be to do with different factors in the patient that mean that the tissue responds differently. But broadly speaking, they all have this same endometrial gland and stroma structure to them to a certain degree. Amazing. <clears throat> okay, so we just talked about, um, you know, the definition of endometriosis. We, it takes women about seven years on average to be diagnosed and all of that. And, um, and that's usually because a lot of the time, many general physicians do not also rec recognize the symptoms. So is it possible that as, um, okay, so let me go, say it this way. Would you say that the delay in diagnosis is partly due to the fact that there are so many treatment methods now that address the symptoms, but not exactly the disease? And maybe this means that there isn't enough efforts being put into understanding the actual disease so we can figure out what the cure, I say cure, but could be. And um, the reason I'm saying this is because I read something in one of the articles I was reading, and I'll read it verbatim now. It says, a vivid example is found in the book Adenomyoma of the Uterus, published in 1908 by Thomas Cullen. In describing for the first time the symptoms of uterine adenomyomas, he wrote, in the early years of our investigations, we also failed to detect it clinically. But in the early and fairly advanced stages of the process, so definite are the symptoms that the hospital assistant now frequently comes and says that a given case has all the signs of an adenomyoma and that he feels sure that this is the cause of the bleeding. So if it, that article to me, I might be wrong, but the article to me seems like it, it was clear in those years, right? Mm. Easily when a patient had that disease. But right now, it's, it seems like it's harder to diagnose endometriosis or is it just the lack of knowledge or is it that there are so many treatment methods now? So what, what would you say is the answer? Sure, I think that? there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there, a huge yeah. amount. I think first of all to say that uh, Cullen was, was talking about uterine adenomyomas, but he used that phrase to describe endometriosis, big okay. endometriotic nodules. And he was right, we're talking early in the 20th century here. What, was it easier to diagnose now or, or 100 years ago? it's definitely easier to diagnose now. You know, there's absolutely no question about that. The, the, the techniques we have now in terms of ultrasound, MRI, some blood tests which suggest it, the way we talk to patients about symptoms, and of course, laparoscopy and looking at things under the microscope has been revolutionized over the last, you know, 100 years, it's been revolutionized over the last 20 years. Yeah. So I think, you know, to answer that question quite plainly, 100%, we're better now at looking at things. Was Thomas Cullen in 1908 looking at small peritoneal implants of endometriosis? Was he looking at women who had tubal factor subfertility? No, he wasn't. He was almost certainly looking at women who had extraordinarily severe disease. Can you imagine to have surgery at 1908? This is a time when probably the, the chances of, uh, of, of having um, you know, severe complications or even dying after an operation were 
25 to 50 percent you know even more than that we didn't have good anesthetics we didn't have any antibiotics so you know he wasn't operating willy-nilly and i think he was probably dealing with by far and away the most significant end of the condition the delay in diagnosis is such an important issue and i'm really glad you brought it up seven years is bandied around seven and a half years is uh, is the number that endometriosis uk the charity in the uk are are talking about and they've got a big campaign to raise money on the basis of, uh, of that and delays are hugely debilitating these are people who have terrible symptoms pain every month chronic pain symptoms elsewhere in the body depending on where the endometriosis might be and importantly subfertility as well and these are you know people in the prime of their lives and seven and a half years of debilitating disease in your 20s and 30s when frankly, you could be getting on with things that you'd far rather be enjoying is, is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So any methods we have and things we can talk about to try and reduce that delay in diagnosis is important. To, to just mention what we're defining when we're talking about that delay, this is a delay when people first develop symptoms to when they get a diagnosis. We haven't really talked about it yet, but the way you make a diagnosis of endometriosis, as a lot of people know already, is you have to see it at laparoscopy take it away, look at it under a microscope and say, this is endometriosis. We've yeah. seen this tissue that looks like the lining of the womb. It's got endometrial slant, strand, um, sorry, glands and stroma, and it wasn't in the womb, therefore it's endometriosis. Doing that is a fairly interventional thing to do. It involves having a general anesthetic, it involves having a camera, usually in through the tummy button, and it's not without risk. Broadly speaking, it's a very safe thing. I know a lot of people listening would have had laparoscopies in the, in the past but they will be only too aware that they take quite a bit of recovery from. They take a bit of preparation for, and there's, to an extent, a limitation in resources. You have to have someone like me who can put a camera in your tummy button. You have to have an anesthetist, an operating theater, specialist nurses, you know, all, all the whole environment around. So you, you, you can understand that it, there's going to be a little bit of a lead in time. Seven and a half years is ridiculous, you know, and that, 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 is, that is obscene. If it was seven and a half years in a condition other than, you know, this, then there would be the outcry. I think the reason why there's such a delay is because the symptoms of endometriosis can be so variable and quite nonspecific. Uh, they can range from symptoms that a lot of people consider normal, like painful periods. A lot of people have painful periods, you know, particularly when women are first starting out during puberty. They can be quite irregular, quite painful. But some people have painful periods throughout their whole lives and they haven't got endometriosis. It is not a particularly sensitive marker of endometriosis, but it is far more common in people who do suffer from endometriosis. Yeah. Other symptoms people have is the chronic pelvic pain. If you have it for a long period of time, or even some people right from the beginning experience pain that isn't related to their menstrual cycle. It happens all the time. It might get worse during that period, but it's always there. That, again, sadly, is a symptom that we see in women without endometriosis. In actual fact, as, as a gynecologist, when we see women with chronic pelvic pain, we aren't able to give them an answer around about half the time, even after diagnostic laparoscopy. And we look and we, we don't see endometriosis, we don't see ovarian cysts, we, we, we simply don't at the moment have an explanation for things. It, it's probably multifactorial. The other symptoms of endometriosis, which I think when you put everything together, make the diagnosis seem a bit more straightforward, are more to do with the severity of the disease, things like pain during intercourse what you might hear doctors describe as dyspareunia or you read about and that usually is a, is a pain kind of a deeper internal pain during intercourse having said that there are other causes for this pelvic inflammatory disease other ovarian cysts adhesions from another cause so adhesions of scar tissue in the pelvis 
Um, and some women experience painful intercourse that isn't explained, even after laparoscopy again. The other one we commonly see again in, in more severe disease is pain during defecation. So when women need to go for a poo, they get urgency when you go, you really need to go, and it's, it's, it's really painful. And that might be even worse during menstruation. Yeah. That's usually when you have erectile vaginal nodule or deep infiltrating endometriosis. It's what doctors describe as dyskesia. And you might see that word if you're reading about endometriosis. And I think if we were to put all those four symptoms together, painful periods, chronic pain that wasn't there just during menstruation, pain during intercourse that got worse during menstruation on deep sex and pain going to the laboratory, particularly around periods, you know, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is probably endometriosis. And if you ask most GPs that, they would draw that conclusion. But it's putting everything together and it's putting everything together right then and there. And not every endometriosis patient has all of those symptoms all at once. And they might start off with the painful periods and then, you know, other things might change. There's other questions to ask about, is it likely or not? When we're screening people for other conditions, we would ask about their risk factors for it. You know, if you've got a weird and wonderful fever and feeling unwell, the GP might ask you, oh, have you been away recently anywhere? Have you got, you know, malaria? Have you just got back from Africa? That's a risk factor. In the same way with endometriosis, thinking about whether it's something that anyone else in the family has suffered from, I think is important. We do know that, and I think we're going to get onto this when we talk about where it might come from, but it does run in families. Is there a genetic link? Not that we know so far, but it is more likely if a first-degree relative suffered from it. Uh, have you had previous laparoscopies that haven't found anything? You know, previous surgery tends to increase the risk of it. Have you been on a hormonal treatment in the past to try and manage these symptoms? That increased the risk of it. And if the GP were to look back and say, look, you've been four or five times this year with these symptoms, you know, it probably isn't just painful periods that you're suffering from for no other cause than the painful periods. There may be something underlying. Let's think about a referral. And I think it's joining up all those dots that is important and doing some baseline investigations. It's tricky. It's tricky because a lot of the symptoms of endometriosis aren't because of endometriosis. They can be quite variable. And GPs don't have huge amounts of time, especially nowadays, to be able to explore all these issues. You talked a little bit about should we let the disease get kind of severe and then it's more obvious to make a diagnosis. I don't know if that was what you were getting at, but it's not dangerous to start treatment earlier on. And actually, if you control the symptoms, I appreciate this isn't the cure. It's not going to remove the little deposits of endometriosis or the larger deposits of endometriosis as it may be. But if you control the symptoms with something like a combined oral contraceptive pill or a progesterone-only contraceptive pill, or indeed things like a myrena coil, then actually, as long as you're still aware that this diagnosis is a possibility, do you need to rush necessarily to make that diagnosis on laparoscopy if you're controlling the symptoms and the patient is pain-free? Maybe, maybe not. And there's an argument either way. There is, of course, some risk involved and intervention involved with the laparoscopy. And if it wouldn't change anything because the symptoms are under control with the treatment, then why rush and do it? The thing we're not mentioning is fertility. And that is a common symptom of endometriosis. And we know that on average, women who suffer with the condition take longer to fall pregnant from when they start trying for a family to when they have a baby. Um, for some women, they aren't able to have a baby or have to have IVF because of their disease. And, and, and that is something that does change over time. We know that one of the biggest factors in fertility is the age of the mother and to a large extent, the age of the father, but we're, we're, we're knowing more about that as time goes on. If we're delaying making a diagnosis for seven years and then you 
start for a baby after that period of time. It takes, you know, two years of trying and you're still not pregnant. Then you get a referral to the subfertility center. Then there's more investigations. We could happily be 10 years down the line before we've, we've drawn a conclusion. We've started treatment during that. If in the first year, the GP says, right, there are these confluence of symptoms. Let's do some tests, probably a pelvic ultrasound. We'll see if there's any cysts on the ovaries. We'll see if there's any sign of deep infiltrating disease on the ultrasound. I think it's important to remember that ultrasound can't find the smaller peritoneal deposits. We'll make a referral to secondary care and, and they can talk about things. And if the woman suffering with all these symptoms knows that endometriosis is on the radar, knows it's a possibility, even if there hasn't been a confirmed diagnosis made, I think that would still be very useful. When she does want to start having a family, she says, look, I've probably got this condition or there's been a strong suspicion I've had this condition at the past. Let's not waste another two years of me trying for a baby. Let's start having a laparoscopy sooner, making a diagnosis and treating things. I wouldn't worry about masking symptoms with hormonal treatments unless there were other priorities like fertility or the disease was getting so severe that the, 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 the treatment with hormonal medications or pain relief wasn't enough. The only cure, you're absolutely right, is surgery. There is a big dilemma, and, and we don't really know the answers to whether endometriosis is a progressive condition. If you start off with peritoneal implants over a period of time, will you end up with severe deep infiltrating endometriosis? Probably not. But having said that, deep infiltrating endometriosis doesn't come from nowhere. You know, it doesn't appear one day and then there it is. There's a great big nodule. It starts off small and it grows over a period of time. Yeah this gets back to it probably being a different disease to start with and the way the body reacts to it is different and the, and the primary endometriotic tissue is different. The genetics in the area might be different. So the key thing is identifying those people, people who are at higher risk of developing the deep infiltrating disease. So we can treat that earlier. And when we treat it, sadly, there is a rate of recurrence, but overall, the rates of recurrence are you know, much lower than having the disease to start with and you're going to be disease free for a long period of time and therefore the chances of being pain free are there and, and the chances of conceiving whether it's natural or IVF are improved. So absolutely the delay in diagnosis is a huge issue. Should we wait till the disease gets worse to aid making a diagnosis? No. I think if you're offered a treatment that helps your symptoms Mostly these are going to be hormonal contraceptive type medications, either combined or progesterone only, myrena coil, for example, depending on the circumstances, then you don't be afraid. People are often worried about masking symptoms. You know, are things going to get worse in the background? Yeah. Usually these, these medications hold things at bay, actually. They're not going to cure it. It would be untrue to say that hormonal contraceptive cures an endometriosis. But if we're making a potential diagnosis in someone who's had three children, they don't want any more children, they're suffering from incredibly painful periods and they want a solution, they don't necessarily want to rush to have a laparoscopy because there's a risk and things get better on a medication, then that's not the wrong thing to do. Okay. Why don't you take a break, grab a snack or go get hydrated and we will be back in 15 seconds.
interesting. I have a, <laughs> I'm going to jump the gun here and ask about the um so you mentioned that we shouldn't worry about masking symptoms i think yeah oh yeah masking symptoms you're not going to make it worse necessarily and if the medications actually mean that you can live without symptoms Mm -hmm. then don't worry about that that would be safe to do okay and how about the long-term effects of those medications? So I know we're still going to have um, another episode where we go into you know, uh, you, the treatment methods and you, we are going to break down, you know, the marina call, progesterone oil, mm. and all of that. But just a quick one before we jump to the final question, I think for, or maybe if we have more time, we'll see what happens. But today is... Um, those medications that mask help mask the symptoms, even if they don't um, cause the endometriosis to progress, mm. are there long-term effects that we need to be at least maybe not concerned about, but aware of um, that you know everyone should still know about, so that they don't just go onto those treatment plans without a clear understanding of what you know what it entails. Certainly, absolutely. And you, there are different effects depending on what sort of treatments we're talking about. And we'll go into more depth in a future episode, I'm sure, talking about individual treatments. But broadly speaking, taking a long term, something like a combined oral contraceptive pill has shown to be safe. In actual fact, if you look at incidents of things like ovarian cancer, it's lower in women who had a, a, the combined contraceptive pill over a longer period of time. It reduces the rate of cell damage in the ovary and therefore potentially that's how it stops ovarian cancer setting in. Other treatments can be detrimental to take for a long period of time. They can cause side effects. Let's not underestimate the, 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 the massive effects that hormonal medications can have on some women. Not everyone. Some people might find it settles symptoms. Some people might find their skin improves. You know, we actually prescribe these hormone, hormonal treatments for, for acne and things. But undoubtedly, we're talking about mood changes, particularly progesterone-only treatments. We're talking about fluid retention, bloating tiredness, all of those sorts of symptoms, skin changes as well. Some people find they get really quite greasy skin. The one that can be dangerous to stay on for a long period of time and certainly wouldn't be recommended to do so for uh, a very prolonged uh, episode would be the hormone blocking injections, the GNRH analogs, things like Lupronon, Zolodex, Decapeptil. Um, There's various flavors. Usually they're injected. There are some tablet preparations as well. They essentially put you into a postmenopausal state, which can give you all the symptoms that that entails, hot flushes, night sweats, headaches, mood changes. Usually there are medications we can use to moderate these, these side effects. But one of the more dangerous ones is thinning of the bones, something called osteopenia, which can lead to osteoporosis. It is usually reversible. And actually, when the body starts producing estrogen again after the medications are stopped, the bones remodel and re-thicken and re-harden. But undoubtedly, the longer you're on these sorts of medications, we don't know when or when not the menopause might start in people. If the menopause were also to start quite early and you have a long period of your life without normal amounts of estrogen, you could be at higher risk of these conditions, which can lead to fractures in the bones, which can be very debilitating in someone in later life. So there are definitely side effects and adverse effects of all these hormonal medications to consider. I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't be doing laparoscopies and shouldn't be making diagnoses. That would be a very silly thing for a gynecological surgeon to suggest because we're not going to have any business anymore. But, you know, aside from that, making diagnosis is incredibly important. It, the laparoscopy not only diagnoses, we can also treat the endometriosis. And we want to treat it by excision. We're not going to be 
necessarily ablating deposits here. We'll talk about treatment later. But if we excise it, we are significantly reducing the risk of it coming back. Okay. Does it still have a rate of coming back? Yes, sadly it does. But if we treat it early, then we can prevent these symptoms for a long period of time. So why not do that laparoscopy in the first year of diagnosis? 100%. Yeah. I agree emphatically with that. Practically speaking, don't be afraid, however, of starting a medication that does control your symptoms, provided other things are going on in the background. If people are talking about endometriosis, there is a referral to the hospital. You've had an ultrasound scan then don't be afraid of taking a pill. If it gets you better, then fantastic. Please do it. It's not going to be dangerous. You know, if you were diagnosed with high blood pressure, would you take a medication to control it? It's not curing the high blood pressure. If you stop taking the medication, the blood pressure would be high again. Well, of course you would, because you know that taking that medication is a good thing to do, um, excepting there might be some side effects from it. But actually, on balance, controlling that symptom is a good thing. So, so don't be afraid. There are some other adverse effects of the combined contraceptions, mostly around having blood clots in the legs and the lungs, which can be associated if women have got migraines or, or a history of blood clots, or indeed they've got high blood pressure themselves. There are certain cautions, but your doctor would rest assured make all those assessments before they prescribed anything. Okay, amazing. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, very well. So we've talked about, you've really broken down a lot of the symptoms of endometriosis, um, the period pains, pelvic pain, and subfertility or infertility. But I know that there are, as an endometriosis patient myself, there are other symptoms such as fatigue. So can you break down some other symptoms that um, are not usually very talked about or are maybe rare or maybe not rare, but just not well known of endometriosis Absolutely. so people can be more aware about that? Quite right. I think that's very important to say, you know, the, 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 the four symptoms that I brought up briefly before are the, the common ones that are talked about in the textbook. And those are the ones that, that have a very clear sort of rationale and reason, if you know what I mean. When I look in the pelvis with a laparoscope with a camera, you can see exactly why sex is painful for this lady. You can see thickening and, uh, and inflammation on the ligaments behind the wound. So it all makes sense. The other symptoms are a little bit more diffuse and they can be more variable and, and they can be quite nonspecific particularly gastrointestinal symptoms, exceptionally common in women with endometriosis. Often they describe it being like IBS. There's variable diarrhea, constipation. It can get a lot worse during the time of menstruation, and that's when all the endometriotic tissue is really inflamed and angry. Just like the, 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 the lining of the womb that's shedding, the endometriosis elsewhere is, is, is getting very upset. It's difficult to explain exactly why this happens. We often don't see true endometriotic deposits on the bowel when we look, and that's a good thing. You know, they, they can be quite dangerous. They're quite rare, and they can be very dangerous indeed. It's probably just to, to do with the environment in the lining of the abdomen. Everything shares the lining of the abdomen, what we call the intraperitoneal cavity. That's the cavity that the small bowel lives in, the large bowel lives in, the stomach, the liver, all of the gynecological organs live there together. So if there's one part of the body that's, that's really quite inflamed, sending out all these um, substances and chemicals because it's, it's, it's screaming out for help, of course, the bowel, it's hardly a big surprise that that's going to, living in that environment, get quite upset with us as well. Fatigue, absolutely. That's a, a symptom that a lot of people have, and it may or may not be related to the, the menstruation. I think it's no great surprise that women with a, a chronic pain condition suffer from fatigue. And actually, if we look at other chronic pain conditions, whether it's fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, fatigue, and I think not to be brushed over, slightly more significant mental health conditions, things like depression and anxiety, 
uh, are definitely hugely overrepresented in women with these conditions. I'm talking about women because I'm a gynecologist, but I shouldn't undermine that men, I'm sure, suffer with, <laughs> with uh, mental health difficulties as a result of chronic pelvic pain. You know, that's no great surprise. Is it because of the pain? Is it because of the, the stresses and the difficulties having any chronic illness? Or is there something else going on? Is actually the endometriosis fundamentally driving these neurological symptoms? That's another question that we don't have an answer to. Almost certainly it's a mixture of everything, like so much about endometriosis. More question marks than full stops. I know, enigma, hence the word enigma. Absolutely. <laughs> Bloating as well. A lot of women describe the endo belly. This is a symptom that some people get even if they don't have endometriosis. So a lot of people do experience some swelling in the lower pelvis during menstruation and after ovulation could be to do with uh, increased progesterone levels. The endo belly is, is, is fairly common in women with endo. Again, probably to do with all that inflammation, everything that's going on in the pelvis. It's, people sometimes draw the conclusion, oh, I'm, I'm swollen, therefore I have an ovarian cyst or something like that. You may or may not. I think it's probably fluid that's actually just free inside the pelvis rather than being confined within a cyst of an ovary. Okay, so let's talk about the theories of the causes of endometriosis. There are so many theories, well, I don't know if it's so many, but there are a few theories out there that we're aware of. And the most popular one is the retrograde menstruation by John Sampson, which you talked to, who you talked about earlier. So this theory states that endometrial debris is shed through the fallopian tube and during menstruation and that's what causes endometriosis so that's the theory but from what i've been reading research has shown that retrograde menstruation is actually a common phenomenon if that's the word it's common and it um, happens in up to 90 percent of individuals that menstruate and endometriosis only happens in about 10 percent of endometriosis so i think this is one of the reasons why this theory is widely disputed. So I just want to go through all the theories. I think it's quite interesting and a lot of people will benefit from understanding or knowing about the theory. So let's do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the key question is, how did the endometriotic tissue get from inside the womb to outside the womb? Or was it never from inside the womb and it started outside the womb right at the beginning? Samson's theory, retrograde menstruation, it's a very attractive theory because, of course, women do have retrograde menstruation. If I were to do a laparoscopy on someone who was currently menstruating, it wouldn't be unusual at all to see some menstrual blood in the pelvis coming back through the fallopian tubes. You're absolutely right to say that is exceptionally more common than the incidence of endometriosis. So there's something else going on, isn't there? If everyone who had retrograde menstruation had endometriosis, then endometriosis would probably have been about 90% of people rather than the around 10% of people exactly. we think it's in at the moment. The truth probably lies in the fact that the peritoneum and the areas where the endometriosis sets in is different in, in those women who suffer with endometriosis. There is probably a different inflammatory environment, a different genetic environment, or I probably should be careful here because I'm sure there'll be some scientists listening. An epigenetic environment is probably a more accurate way of putting it, which is about how the genes are expressed and switched on and off rather than necessarily what the genes are to start with in the pelvis in women who suffer with endometriosis. Samson's theory we quite like because it describes why we see endometriosis where we see it, which is on the ovary, in the peritoneum, usually around the womb and in the pelvis. We do see it in the peritoneum elsewhere as well, like on the base of the diaphragm. 
but often it's confined to the pelvis and it particularly likes to invade on the uterosacral ligaments which hang off the back of the uterus the back of the cervix and go to the sacrum which is the base of the spine it's one of the ligaments that that holds together the pelvic floor and the womb that when you're standing up and when you're lying down in bed is where gravity would take all of this menstrual blood it sits in an area we call the pouch of douglas between the womb and the rectum near the uterosacral ligaments and that's where we see a lot of endometriosis set in so it sort of makes sense that if it's sitting there because of retrograde menstruation it may well invade there but then i suspect there's something else going on in terms of the genetic makeup of either the endometrial tissue or the peritoneum that allows it to invade mm. or it invades in everyone and the peritoneum just has a very different response to the invasion of the endometriosis it makes all this fibrous tissue it makes smooth muscle tissue in the area and you get a very large nodule form other theories talk about the fact that this was never endometriotic tissue that started in the womb at all this is peritoneal tissue the tissue that lines the tummy that's changed it's fundamentally changed it's gone through a process we call metaplasia which is a transformation of the tissue from one cell type to another cell type there's also theories that there might be stem cells knocking around in the tummy stem cells or pluripotent stem cells as we describe them are cells that have the potential to become anything in the body when you're an embryo you're, you're made of lots and lots of pluripotent stem cells because one yeah. cell might become a bit of brain one cell might become a bit of your left toe so yeah. you, they have the potential to be anything so a fundamental change in the cells which goes from being peritoneum to being endometriosis endometriosis has been found in men men don't have retrograde menstruation they don't have an endometrium how did it get there well the cell type probably changed does that mean that's happening in everyone well possibly possibly not but there might be a degree of that going on um another theory is describing a little bit more how it could spread either going through the blood tissue or through the lymphatics the lymphatics is tissue fluid that drains from all structures of the body and focusing in lymph nodes and taking it all back to the, to the central core to be recirculated. People may well understand a little bit of this in theories about how cancer is spread. Some cancers spread through lymph and, and deposited in lymph nodes, breast cancer being an example. Um, some cancers spread through the blood and that's why cancers are often spread to organs that have a very high blood supply like the liver, the kidneys, the brain, the bones. Is endometriosis spread like that? Well, possibly. Is endometriosis spread like that always to the uterosacral ligaments? Well, if it was going in the blood, why would it always sit to the uterosacral ligaments? Why wouldn't it go to the brain? Why wouldn't it go to the lungs? So it's probably not the, 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 the true cause of things. Is, however, that the cause of endometriosis which spreads or, or appears later in the lung tissue? It could be. And we know that is a rare complication of endometriosis, is having endometriotic deposits well away from the pelvis. So I think there's a grain of truth in all of the above. There's probably a genetic predisposition and we know that, as I discussed, it does run in families. You're at a higher risk if you have a first-degree relative with endometriosis. Is that because of pure genetics or is that a mixture of nature and nurture? If you're in the same family, you're likely to be exposed to the same environmental uh, things that could predispose to the condition. We don't know the answer. We can't pinpoint an individual gene for it, but it's, it's definitely there. There's something deeper down going on, more than retrograde menstruation. It's not entirely that cell type changing, and it's probably not spread entirely through the lymph or the blood system so we don't know the answer like i said more question marks an utter enigma other risk factors we know that some studies have shown it's a bit more likely in babies who are born small so if you were smaller than you should have been when you were born because your mother might have had a condition like preeclampsia where the placenta wasn't working quite as well perhaps you when you were a fetus 
your genes changed a little bit because your body was under a bit more stress because you weren't getting necessarily all the right nutrients and oxygen mixes and things when you were developing. And that can predispose to endometriosis. There's other theories about how when you are a fetus and when you are a very early newborn, the um, hormones that your mother produced may or may not have affected your body and caused endometriotic deposits. Believe it or not, some newborn babies actually have periods um, because of the hormones that they were exposed to when they're in the womb. Yeah, up to about 5% of newborns have periods. Oh my God. Um, and there has been endometriosis found in newborns. Sadly, it's found on post-mortem cases when babies were either born stillborn or died very early on, but they find endometrial tissue outside the womb there. So uh, that's not retrograde menstruation. No. The baby hasn't babies, gone through any menstruation yet. Yeah, for the babies that have had periods, how mm. do they, are they alive? Or how does it work? Yeah, it's a very, it's, it's a relatively normal phenomenon. It's not dangerous. It's to do with the exposure to the endometrial tissue, to the mother's hormones. During pregnancy, there's a large, large, large amount of progesterone, and that's a very good thing circulating in the mother's circulation, and that inevitably goes to the baby's circulation. And it acts on the lining of the womb, and it causes a reaction similar to that that women have in the second half of their menstrual cycle in the very early stages of pregnancy called decidualization. And that can cause the endometrium to shed when the baby's born and then no longer exposed to that progesterone. So the progesterone is withdrawn and then the baby has a bleed. It's, it's rare. It's not something that people know a lot about. And it's probably not implicated particularly in endometriosis, but just getting into how complex it might be and how no theory seems to individually stand up. You know, the fact that we've seen endometriosis in, in newborns and, and, and even babies before they're delivered suggests that there's something else going on. Wow. So is there any other thing apart from, um, you know, you just mentioned that those who have family members um, mm. with endometriosis, whether it's nature or nurture, are predisposed to having the disease itself as well. Um, are there any other risk factors like race or maybe BMI or anything else that could sure. also be something to consider when it comes to um, the cause of endometriosis or predisposition to endometriosis? Yeah. So race, probably not. Different studies have shown different things. There are a few studies that showed it was slightly more prevalent in women from South Asian ethnicities. It's always difficult to say. We don't know whether there's a, a bias in the way the diagnosis was made. Perhaps if you are in South Asia, in order to have a laparoscopy, you have to have far more severe symptoms because of the more limited resources. Therefore, your endometriosis is overrepresented in that group. We don't know. But probably race doesn't have a large part to play. BMI, it's actually shown that, generally speaking, people with endometriosis have a lower BMI or a healthy BMI. And that is usually true in women with more severe disease particularly. BMI, a higher BMI, tends to be a protective factor. Or I shouldn't say that because I don't think having a high BMI reduces the risk of endometriosis. It is just that endometriosis is less likely if you have a high BMI. So I certainly wouldn't recommend women putting on weight, for example. <laughs> Maybe I should put on some weight. <laughs> yes. That doesn't mean that if you've got a high BMI, you, you can't have endometriosis. But if you were to just look statistically speaking, someone with a BMI of, of 20 is probably more likely to suffer with the condition than someone with a BMI of 30, for example. We don't necessarily know exactly why that is. It's probably to do with those epigenetic causes. The fact that you've got a little bit more fat tissue switches on and off various genes in terms of how your body responds to the above theories, whether it's retrograde menstruation or, or metaplasia. Other risk factors, 
studies have shown that women who started periods earlier in their life might be a little bit more likely to have endometriosis. That perhaps rings a little bit more true with the retrograde menstruation theory. If you have more periods, potentially there's more exposure. Other studies haven't shown that to increase the risk. So it's variable. People have looked at things like having intercourse or using tampons during menstruation. Uh, So having intercourse during menstruation, the theory being that more retrograde menstruation is going to happen to to do with that. But I think we can rest assured and I can reassure people there's no increased risk in that. You can use tampons, you can use cups, you can use sanitary towels, you can have as much sex during menstruation as you like. It doesn't increase the risk of endometriosis. It's tricky. We, We don't know any individual risk factors for it. But generally speaking, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you look like. You could still have endometriosis. It's a little bit more common in women who are slimmer rather than women who are overweight. And that doesn't mean it's impossible in women who are overweight, perhaps just slightly less likely that's the cause of the symptoms it's more likely in people who don't have children is that because endometriosis causes infertility possibly it's no great surprise that you know people may well have had children in their early 20s but because they weren't able to get pregnant so easily they haven't got those children so they've had families in later life yeah it's a little bit more likely in women who have what we describe as sort of higher education levels women who've been to university and got postgraduate degrees and things like that it's almost certainly not anything to do with the fact that you've been yeah. to university that's Just caused it. But it could right? be that there's a mixture of risk factors there. And women who have been to university and have postgraduate degrees are perhaps a bit more likely to have delayed having families. That could be the link there. So it, it's difficult to say. I couldn't pinpoint any individual thing. Okay. But that's good to know. It's good to know all the risk factors or all the theories as well of the causes or potential causes of endometriosis. This has yeah. We've talked a lot about endometriosis, the causes, the symptoms and the risk factors. Can we just quickly talk about adenomyosis? Because I feel like um, even though we talk a lot about endometriosis in this world, we don't say as much, well, I don't say as much about adenomyosis. And I think it's really important as well for people to understand the difference between adenomyosis and endometriosis, even though they are literally, they're said to be twins, the evil twins. <laughs> they are, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a huge crossover between the two. Um, and a lot of women with endometriosis would also suffer from adenomyosis and vice versa. They were described as being very similar things. And we talked earlier on about how Cullen talked about endometriosis as being adenomyosis. He called everything adenomyosis, interna and externa. Externa being endometrial tissue outside the womb, adenomyosis interna, and what we call adenomyosis today, being endometriosis tissue within the lining of the womb. So the womb has a few layers It's made of the endometrial cavity, which is the layer that thickens and thins every time you go through your menstrual cycle. It stabilizes and and helps nurture an embryo that grows into a baby when you're pregnant, or it sheds if you're not pregnant at the end of the menstrual cycle. A little bit deeper than that, we have what we call the myometrium, and that's made of muscle. Its Mm -hmm. one job is to, to, to grow and expand with a pregnancy and then give you all that pain when you have your baby in the form of contractions to allow the cervix to dilate and deliver the baby. Adenomyosis describes when that endometrial tissue grows into the myometrium. So it's into the muscle layer of the womb. Mm. As you can imagine, that tissue gets inflamed, it gets angry every time you go through a cycle, and it causes the the myometrium to respond in the way the muscle does when you you upset it, and that's by contracting. So you get those huge menstrual cramps, the same sort of pains that women have in childbirth are being reproduced every time you have a menstrual cycle with adenomyosis. You can, when the adenomyosis gets even more severe, get real nodules and plaques within the womb of this this adenomyotic tissue, which is fibrous, it's scarred, and then that can then invade out the other side of the womb 
and it can impact on external organs. If you can get plaques between the womb and the, and, and the rectum, that's a part of the large bowel there as well. The treatments uh, are, are different, broadly speaking, because we can excise endometriosis when it's on the peritoneum, we can excise cysts when it's on the ovaries, we can excise nodules when they're behind the womb or on the uterosacral ligaments with varying degrees of risk and success, but we, we can usually excise those without huge amounts of collateral damage. We have to be aware of risk of damage to the bowel. I think we'll talk about that much later on. Uh, risk of damage to blood vessels and the urinary system. But we can do that. We can talk to you about the pros and cons of that and, and, and do that for you. The only cure to excise the adenomyosis would be a hysterectomy. Mm. Of course, a hysterectomy means that there's no possibility of having future children. And that's a huge operation to go through. It's an operation some women choose to have. And it's an operation some women, sadly, and testament to how severe the condition can be it's an operation some women have as early as their 20s for such severe conditions and it does help it's, it's undoubtedly a cure for adenomyosis but at a huge cost if however the woman has completed her family then that can be a reasonable thing to consider going through the risks with with a gynecologist to talk about the pros and cons a lot of the treatment of adenomyosis is hormonal leading up to that eventual surgical treatment if that's something that the patient feels they would benefit from and the hormone universally is progesterone. Right. The role of progesterone is to calm down the endometriosis, stop it getting angry every time you have a cycle and stop it upsetting the, the muscle of the womb to try and reduce the risk of those contractions. The best way of delivering progesterone to the womb itself is with a progesterone coil. The one that a lot of people would have heard of is the Mirena. Other companies make them, but uh, the Mirena is the one most commonly used probably on the NHS. And there's huge amounts of evidence to show it's, it works. A lot of people, the vast majority of people with a Mirena don't have periods anymore. And those that do have periods have them much lighter and much less frequently. Okay. Of course, there are side effects. It's painful to put it in. It can make you faint when it goes in. It can cause damage to the womb when it goes in. They can cause irregular bleeding. And, and, and some women get side effects from the progesterone itself, even though it's just being delivered to the womb. So it's, it's not to be done after considering those pros and cons. But for a lot of people, it's a very, very good treatment and a very easy treatment. Because when the coil's in, you can forget about it for five years. You don't need to use anything else for contraception because the happy side effect is you can't fall pregnant as well, if that's not what you're wishing for at the time. If you did want to fall pregnant, the Myrena coil can come out quite easily and you can fall pregnant again relatively quickly. It doesn't call a delayed onset of fertility. Other progesterone treatments work for adenomyosis as well. But they are fundamentally different conditions, adenomyosis and, and, and endometriosis. A similar sort of thing is going on in the background in terms of that endometriosis getting inflamed. But when it comes to treatment, they are quite different. Okay. Wow. What an awesome first episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. So this Don't is mention it. end of episode one. And um, next episode, we'll be talking about the different kinds of endometriosis, which you mentioned briefly before, about deep infiltrating endometriosis, peritoneal endometriosis, endometriomas. We'll deep, dive deeper into those and also stages of endo and a few more um, aspects of endometriosis so everyone who's listening should stay tuned and be back for next episode <laughs> so <Perfect. we're, laughs> just um do you want to say anything else is there anything else you want to add to this just as a final last words before the end of episode one absolutely i, I think the most important thing the thing to emphasize here is it's that delay in diagnosis that's so frustrating. It's frustrating not knowing what's causing all these symptoms. It's frustrating, and I can definitely see where people are coming from when 
treatments are started that you know seem to be fobbing people off oh have some pills it's it's very common to have painful periods so you know being aware that putting together a few symptoms if you've got the ibs symptoms if you've got the painful intercourse if you have the the swelling of the tummy and the fatigue and everything else be suspicious of endometriosis raise it with your doctor say look you know i've read about this is this something that you think i might be suffering from should we take some next steps to, to have a closer look? For example, a, a pelvic ultrasound, usually a, an internal scan actually is more accurate at seeing things like cysts on the ovary. So don't be afraid of that if your doctor suggests it in the aid of getting a diagnosis. But equally, don't worry about starting those pills that the GP is recommending. They usually make it a, a big difference. Be aware there are certain side effects and risks, but provided things are going on in the background, provided there are other things going on leading towards an eventual diagnosis, which is by laparoscopy, it wouldn't be the wrong thing to do to start some treatment that helps your symptoms and helps you live with your life because actually these symptoms are so debilitating that you can't get on. It's, it's days off work. It's difficulties with relationships. There's a huge social and economic cost to endometriosis, which actually, if we reduced the time in diagnosing, treated with surgery, uh, we would probably be saving money overall as a health service. Yeah, sure. That we will. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. <laughs> Don't mention it. Really lovely to chat to you, Tenny. Looking forward to the next episode. Yes, me too. I hope you have learned a lot from this episode today. Be sure to come back next week for episode two, where we talk about the different types of endometriosis, the colors of endo, stages of endo, and we'll also go through a case study of a woman with endometriosis and what her treatment plan was. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love to know. Join me on Instagram and Facebook. You can also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Center for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london where Tom and his team share a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe to this podcast. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by Endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.